Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 6, Part 1 And so, Glaucon, I said, after a somewhat lengthy and difficult discussion, both the philosophers and the non-philosophers have revealed who they are. It probably wouldn't have been easy, he said, to have them do it in a shorter one. Apparently not, but for my part, I think that the matter would have been better illuminated if we had only it to discuss and not all the other things that remained to be treated in order to discover the difference between the just life and the unjust one. What's our next topic? What else but the one that's next in order? Since those who are able to grasp what is always the same in all respects are philosophers, while those who are not able to do so, and who wander among the many things that vary in every sort of way, are not philosophers, which of the two should be the leaders in a city? What would be a sensible answer to that? We should establish as guardians those who are clearly capable of guarding the laws and the ways of life of the city. That's right. And isn't it clear that the guardian, who is to keep watch over everything, should be keen-sighted rather than blind? Of course it's clear. Do you think, then that there's any difference between the blind and those who are really deprived of the knowledge of each thing that is, the latter have no clear model in their souls, and so they cannot, in the manner of painters, look to what is most true, make constant reference to it, and study it as exactly as possible. Hence, they cannot establish here on earth conventions about what is fine, or just, or good, when they need to be established, or guard and preserve them once they have been established. No, by God, there isn't much difference between them. Should we, then, make these blind people our guardians? Or rather, those who know each thing that is, and who are not inferior to the others, either in experience or in any other part of virtue? It would be absurd to choose anyone but philosophers, if indeed they are not inferior in these ways, for the respect in which they are superior is pretty well the most important one. Then shouldn't we explain how it is possible for someone to have both these sorts of qualities? Certainly. Then, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, it is necessary to understand the nature of philosophers first. For I think that, if we can reach adequate agreement about that, we'll also agree that the same people can have both qualities, and that no one but they should be leaders in cities. How so? Let's agree that philosophic natures always love the sort of learning that makes clear to them some feature of the being that always is, and does not wander around between coming to be and decaying. And further, let's agree that, like the honor lovers and erotically inclined men we described before, they love all such learning and are not willing to give up any part of it, whether large or small, more valuable or less so. That's right. Consider next whether the people we're describing must also have this in their nature. What? They must be without falsehood. They must refuse to accept what is false, hate it, and have a love for the truth. Well, that's a reasonable addition at any rate. It's not only reasonable, it's entirely necessary. For it's necessary for a man who is erotically inclined by nature to love everything akin to or belonging to the boy he loves. That's right. And could you find anything that belongs more to wisdom than truth does? Of course not then is it possible for the same nature to be a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, and a lover of falsehood? Not at all. 
then someone who loves learning must above all strive for every kind of truth from childhood on. Absolutely. Now, we surely know that when someone's desire inclines strongly for one thing, they are thereby weakened for others, just like a stream that has been partly diverted into another channel, of course. Then, when someone's desires flow towards learning and everything of that sort, he'd be concerned, I suppose, with the pleasures of the soul itself by itself, and he'd abandon those pleasures that come through the body, if indeed he is a true philosopher and not merely a counterfeit one. That's completely necessary. Then surely such a person is moderate, and not at all a money lover. It's appropriate for others to take seriously the things for which money and large expenditures are needed, but not for him. That's right. And of course, there's also this to consider when you are judging whether nature is philosophic or not. What's that? If it is at all slavish, you should not overlook that fact, for pettiness is altogether incompatible with a soul that is always reaching out to grasp everything both divine and human as a whole. That's completely true. And will a thinker high-minded enough to study all time and all being consider human life to be something important? He couldn't possibly. Then will he consider death to be a terrible thing? He least of all. Then it seems a cowardly and slavish nature will take no part in true philosophy. Not in my opinion. And is there any way that an orderly person, who isn't money-loving, slavish, a boaster, or a coward, could become unreliable or unjust? There isn't. Moreover, when you are looking to see whether a soul is philosophic or not, you'll look to see whether it is just and gentle, from youth on, or savage and hard to associate with. Certainly. And here's something I think you won't leave out. What? Whether he's a slow learner or a fast one. Or do you ever expect anyone to love something when it pains him to do it, and when much effort brings only a small return? No, it couldn't happen. And what if he could retain nothing of what he learned, because he was full of forgetfulness? Could he fail to be empty of knowledge? How could he? Then don't you think that, if he's laboring in vain, he'd inevitably come to hate both himself and that activity in the end? Of course. Then let's never include a forgetful soul among those who are sufficiently philosophical for our purposes, but look for one with a good memory. Absolutely. Now, We'd certainly say that the unmusical and graceless element in a person's nature draws him to lack of due measure. Of course. And do you think that truth is akin to what lacks due measure? Or to what is measured? To what is measured. Then, in addition to those other things, let's look for someone whose thought is by nature measured and graceful, and is easily led to the form of each thing that is. Of course. Well then, don't you think the properties we've enumerated are compatible with one another, and that each is necessary to a soul that is to have an adequate and complete grasp of that which is? They're all completely necessary. Is there any objection you can find, then, to a way of life that no one can adequately follow, unless he's by nature good at remembering, quick to learn, high-minded, graceful, and a friend and relative of truth, justice, courage, and moderation? Not even Momus could find one. When such people have reached maturity and age and education, wouldn't you entrust the city to them, and to them alone? And Adamantus replied, 
No one would be able to contradict the things you've said, Socrates, but on each occasion that you say them, your hearers are affected in some such way as this. They think that, because they're inexperienced in asking and answering questions, they're led astray a little bit by the argument at every question, and that, when these little bits are added together at the end of the discussion, great is their fall, as the opposite of what they said at the outset comes to light. Just as inexperienced checkers players are trapped by the experts in the end and can't make a move, so they too are trapped in the end and have nothing to say in this different kind of checkers, which is played not with discs, but with words. Yet the truth isn't affected by this outcome. I say this with a view to the present case, for someone might well say now that he's unable to oppose you as you ask each of your questions. Yet he sees that of all those who take up philosophy, not those who merely dabble in it while still young in order to complete their upbringing and then drop it, but those who continue in it for a longer time, the greatest number become cranks, not to say completely vicious, while those who seem completely decent are rendered useless to the city because of the studies you recommend. When I'd heard him out, I said, Do you think that what these people say is false? I don't know, but I'd be glad to hear what you think. You'd hear that they seem to me to speak the truth. How, then, can it be true to say that there will be no end to evils in our cities until philosophers, people we agree to be useless, rule in them? The question you ask needs to be answered by means of an image or simile. And you, of course, aren't used to speaking in similes. So, are you making fun of me now that you've landed me with a claim that's so hard to establish? In any case, listen to my simile, and you'll appreciate all the more how greedy for images I am. What the most decent people experience in relation to their city is so hard to bear that there's no other single experience like it. Hence, to find an image of it, and a defense for them, I must construct it from many sources, just as painters paint goat stags by combining the features of different things. Imagine, then, that something like the following happens on a ship or on many ships. The ship owner is bigger and stronger than everyone else on board, but he's hard of hearing, a bit short-sighted, and his knowledge of seafaring is equally deficient. The sailors are quarreling with one another about steering the ship, each of them thinking that he should be the captain, even though he's never learned the art of navigation, cannot point to anyone who taught it to him, or to a time when he learned it. Indeed, they claim that it isn't teachable, and are ready to cut to pieces anyone who says that it is. They're always crowding around the ship owner, begging him and doing everything possible to get him to turn the rudder over to them. And sometimes, if they don't succeed in persuading him, they execute the ones who do succeed, or throw them overboard. And then, having stupefied their noble ship owner with drugs, wine, or in some other way, they rule the ship, using up what's in it and sailing in the way that people like that are prone to do. Moreover, they call the person who is clever at persuading or forcing the shipowner to let them rule a navigator, a captain, and one who knows ships, and dismiss anyone else as useless. They don't understand that a true captain must pay attention to the seasons of the year, the sky, the stars, the winds, and all that pertains to his craft if he's really to be the ruler of a ship and they don't believe there is any craft that would enable him to determine how he should steer the ship, 
whether the others want him to or not, or any possibility of mastering this alleged craft or of practicing it at the same time as the craft of navigation. Don't you think that the true captain will be called a real stargazer, a babbler, and a good-for-nothing by those who sail in ships governed in that way, in which such things happen? I certainly do. I don't think that you need to examine the simile in detail to see that the ships resemble cities, and their attitude to the true philosophers, but you already understand what I mean. Indeed, I do. Then first tell this simile to anyone who wonders why philosophers aren't honored in the cities, and try to persuade him that there would be far more cause for wonder if they were honored. I will tell him. Next tell him that what he says is true, that the best among the philosophers are useless to the majority. Tell him not to blame those decent people for this, but the ones who don't make use of them. It isn't natural for the captain to beg the sailors to be ruled by him, nor for the wise to knock at the doors of the rich. The man who came up with that wisecrack made a mistake. The natural thing is for the sick person, rich or poor, to knock at the doctor's door, and for anyone who needs to be ruled to knock at the door of the one who can rule him. It isn't for the ruler, if he's truly any use, to beg the others to accept his rule. Tell him that he'll make no mistake in likening those who rule in our cities at present to the sailors we mentioned just now, and those who are called useless stargazers to the true captains. That's absolutely right. Therefore, it isn't easy for the best ways of life to be highly esteemed by people who, as in these circumstances, follow the opposite ways. By far the greatest and most serious slander on philosophy, however, results from those who profess to follow the philosophic way of life. I mean those of whom the prosecutor of philosophy declared that the greatest number are completely vicious, and the most decent useless. And I admitted that what he said was true, didn't I? Yes. And haven't we explained why the decent ones are useless? Yes, indeed. Then, do you next want us to discuss why it's inevitable that the greater number are vicious, and to try to show, if we can, that philosophy isn't responsible for this either? Certainly. Then, let's begin our dialogue by reminding ourselves of the point at which we began to discuss the nature that someone must have if he is to become a fine and good person. First of all, if you remember, he had to be guided by the truth, and always pursue it in every way, or else he'd really be a boaster, with no share at all in true philosophy. That's what was said. And isn't this view completely contrary to the opinions currently held about him? It certainly is. Then, won't it be reasonable for us to plead in his defense that it is the nature of the real lover of learning to struggle toward what is, not to remain with any of the many things that are believed to be, that, as he moves on, he neither loses nor lessens his erotic love until he grasps the being of each nature itself, with the part of his soul that is fitted to grasp it, because of its kinship with it, and that, once getting near what really is, and having intercourse with it, and having begotten understanding and truth, he knows, truly lives, is nourished, and, at that point, but not before, is relieved from the pains of giving birth. That is the most reasonable defense possible. Well then, will such a person have any part in the love of falsehood, or will he entirely hate it? He'll hate it. 
and if truth led the way, we'd never say, I suppose, that a chorus of evils could ever follow in its train. How could it? But rather a healthy and just character, with moderation following it. That's right. What need is there, then, to marshal all over again from the beginning the members of the philosophic nature's chorus in their inevitable array? Remember that courage, high-mindedness, ease in learning, and a good memory all belong to it. Then you objected, saying that anyone would be compelled to agree with what we said, but that, if he abandoned the argument and looked at the very people the argument is about, he'd say that some of them were useless, while the majority had every kind of vice. So we examined the reason for this slander, and have now arrived at the point of explaining why the majority of them are bad. And it's for this reason that we've again taken up the nature of the true philosophers and defined what it necessarily has to be. That's true. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.